everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talking about write, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your fan base today includes Chaz Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 183, Journey Back to Leaden. Welcome back to Lee Aiden. This is with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. We're glad to have you back. Hello, we're glad to be back. 184 episodes. Congratulations. Oh, you're 183. So coming 183. Up. Okay. <laughs> it seems like just yesterday we were sitting around in a coffee shop singing, you know, sometimes we're funny. We should record this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worked for a long time. Oddly. Yes, I think we've become an odd circuit for many people because somebody is like, well, I'm not I'm not famous enough to be on your show. And I just say, I, I don't care. We're here to talk about writing <laughs> and publishing and the whole creative process. So everything, <laughs> you know, if you need to eat Twizzlers and tuck a loaf of French bread under your wine and, and, and open your laptop and stare at a blank page and close it again, that's all part of writing, right? Yes, yes, that's all part of writing. All part of writing and thinking to yourself, I should write, and then cleaning your house. That's part of writing. Sharon used to tell people she could tell when I was really working hard on a story because I would start with the dishes and I'd be cleaning for a while. There is a lot of deep thought that can come about while one is doing dishes. I, Between dishes and cleaning spinach, I wrote most of a musical once during college. <laughs> I had I, I miss working in an office because the best way to think about a story is to do collation. Walking around the table, sorting papers. I can see that. So we are here to celebrate today salvage right. Is it salvage right or salvage rights? Salvage right. Salvage right. Interesting title. My question is, I, I immediately thought of, you know, derelict vessels hanging in space. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, salvage right sounds almost like something handed down from mother to daughter i give you salvage right <laughs> i give you salvage right well, okay um in case the family ship blows up you can you get to come back and uh, take what's left that works exactly. and and in an odd in an odd way um it, it's not inappropriate for the um, for the the book to hand because the uh, thing being salvaged in uh, salvage right is not a spaceship but rather a space station and the space station has a history that goes in in the family and through the family uh through through blood if you will um that salvage right actually would would almost work that way too i don't see why not well now i'm imagining an interstellar lawyer saying okay i'm going to need the orbital uh, trajectory mathematical points of said space station. If you want to ensure it, make sure that you're passing on, you know, salvage and recycling rights. So I, I dig it. Well, that's that's a good thing because this space station um, used to pass in between two universes. Um, the old universe that the ancestors of the people that we write about escaped from many years ago and um, the universe that they escaped to. And now that it's fixed in space, it can be insured, among other pleasantries. Um, 
exactly. Oh, wow. So you have like the spaceship at the end of the, or space station at the end of the universe there too. Oh, the, the space station straggling two universes, yes. Um, yes. That has uh, almost a flavor of Callahan. <laughs> is there a bar? Is well, there a bar? Not yet. Okay. Uh, it, the station is in pretty bad shape at the at the beginning. It's very old, and um, the AI that used to inhabit it was um, terminated. terminated. Well, um, was trying to control two people who were on station as the light keepers, who's who were who had inserted themselves between the. Um, between the um, intelligence of the space station and the rest of the universe, the um, object of the space station being that it was going to take over the universe. Um, and it had a good shot of doing that. Okay. And timeline-wise, help me out here. This is, is this uh, Clan Corval? This is Clan Corval. This okay. is the, um, this is the book after, ne- directly after Neogenesis. Directly after Neogenesis. So I, I had to look it up once and I was like, is this technically before accepting the Lancer after? Um, Neogenesis, the events in Neogenesis happen before accepting the Lance. Right. This happens just about the same time as accepting the Lance. Fair enough. I would just like to kind of set it in my head of like which. Which threads I'm going down. It's important. You guys have a complicated... No, no, it is. It's, and because we're writing on several different fronts, um, things can happen at the same time in two different places. And that, that's what we have here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have Space Station. We have Edge of Two Universes. Is there a touch of romance? I love your touches of romance. <laughs> There's a married couple in this one. Nice. And, um, a nice married couple, right, Steve? Uh, <laughs> a, a strange married couple. <laughs> there's there's a married couple. There's some... Um, Partner building. Uh, interplay. There's some, some interplay between, um, between comrades. Some people take their relationship to the next level, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so there's, there's a... a not not romance in the um, breakfast at Tiffany style or anything. I, mean, I don't know. I'm always imagining take our relationship to the next level. I'm like you might you might mean moving in together. You might mean admitting to your parents that you're dated. It might mean the sharing your toothbrush, but that could also be a step too far. Um, when Steve and I moved in together um, many many years ago. Um, I called my mom to tell her that um, I was indeed going to do what she had nagged me to do ever since I had moved out of the house. I was going to get a roommate. And she said to me, oh, that's lovely. What is her name? And I said, Steve, bye, mom, love you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, that that was um, that was that was an interesting um, an interesting span in her life. The hardest thing about those first few days together was getting the cats in because one of the cats escaped. Oh, just as we were leaving for Balticon, understand we moved in together the day of Balticon starting. So we needed to get the cats in together, get everything in, and then go off, go off to the convention. How do you, how do you introduce two strange cats into the same household and then run away? I mean, it sounds like useful, but. (laughs) 
didn't know any better um, because I had been living with Archie and Steve had been living with Arwen and neither one of them had to adapt to another cat. And so there was the shock value of them coming face to face and going, what is that? Um, and I think that that actually bridged a lot of um, possible hostility because the time by the time they figured out they were both cats, they were hungry and they wanted to go find something to eat. That seems fair. And, and also through, at that at that point, we weren't there. They had smelled each other probably over over the weeks and even month or, or two behan- beforehand. So they probably had uh, some sense that, oh, yeah. I've, I was I've, going off and visiting a strange cat. Now, you've, I love that you put cats in a lot of your different stories. Like, but wasn't there one that actually kind of owned a repair shop practically? Well, yeah. There, there was Patch who yeah. owned in Jolly's repair shop. Um, and for quite some time. Is there a cat who wanders and owns the space station, keeps it rat free? One, one would not want a cat on the space station as it had been. However, one of the ships that comes in, Bishimo, um, has two cats on it and a Norbear. So they are not without feline supervision. Cats are important. I think I w- we were just musing to ourselves how many cats have figured prominently through science fiction in years past? I mean, the door into summer, the, you know. <laughs> I think that's the classic one. And I can't, I, I can't go before that and think, well, there's, there's a cat, unless it's one of the, uh, one of the young adult or, or children's books might, might have had uh, Mrs. Pickerel. And, but I don't recall Mrs. Pickerel taking I don't remember Mrs. Pickerel having cats. Well, I guess there's been in fantasy too, because from the movies as a kid, I wanted to name a cat Piwack at one day. Yes. But <laughs> well, Pie Wacket is a classic name. Yes. yes. And Bell Book and Candle. Have you have you seen Bell Book and Candle recently? I have not seen it recently. Um, I loved it, and then I saw it. Oh, I don't know, a while back, and was horrified. It was one of those things. It, <laughs> it was one of those things that um, I shouldn't have watched it again. Yeah. Right. I remember which mountain had a cat too, didn't it? Escape yeah. to which mountain. Yes. There's a, a lot of cat opportunity. Cats are, if cats domesticated themselves, there's absolutely no reason they couldn't decide to explore space and help their humans along. You would think that would be too fatiguing for them, but, you know, they're going to sleep anyway, so maybe not. Well, you know, they let the dog go first, and I respect <laughs> that. If, if somebody's going to find out if those tin cans human produce are decent, you know, push the dog, make the dog go first. But You can't see the Pepsi all over my keyboard there. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> There's a cat in alien. Yes, there is a cat in alien. The hero of the movie. So that's what I mean. The I was trying to think of of dogs in science fiction, and all I came up with was a boy and his dog. That counts. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, what well, wasn't there a dog in several of the? spin-offs to <clears throat> Robbie the robot didn't um that young there were there were a couple of really silly spin-offs to that that used Robbie the robot on on earth and i think there was there's a, an opportunity space dog <laughs> but uh, i i don't recall them i don't recall anyone any of them having um primacy the way some of the uh, cats seem to manage well, what can we, if we, if there aren't a cat in particular in salvage rights, what can you tell us about expecting from the latest? 
What new adventures are we looking for? For, for I'm sorry, for, I, because, because we're writers, there's a book that's just come out with two topics, right? And there's, there's been books that we're working on. Um, <laughs> salvage right, salvage right. Salvage right has, has two cats. Um, and I'm going to uh, completely block on the cats because I want their names. Um, and an bear named Hevelin. Um, they come in on Bushimo, which is a sentient spaceship, and also the ambassadorial vessel for the Norbear ambassador. Um, cats in the Leading Universe don't usually travel on spaceships or haven't traveled recently on Corval spaceships. So um, the fact that Theo has two cats is kind of notable, but she has not let them out onto the space station. The space station is a very strange place and weird things happen. And you wouldn't want to risk your cats. I can see that. I can see that. Any self-respecting cat would try to get out anyway, though. Well, that's exactly true. They would try to get out, but yeah, your job is to keep them in. Well, <laughs> testing testing boundaries is important. You need to understand, you know, where the safe places are, and how do you know that if somebody doesn't shoo you away from something? The the advantage on on the part of everybody else here is that Bishimo is is. Um, being alert himself himself and having um, an additional AI on board with him um, are pretty well able to- If doors uh, can close uh, without anybody being in the room. It's oh. true. It's true. Well, this is convention season. Where can people come to meet you and get your copies of your book signed this year? Oh, wow. Well, you- You just, you just missed us at- um, New Jersey at Heliosphere. Um, and the next con is Astronomicon in Rochester. That's in October. Um, this summer, we're finishing two books, so we're not traveling. Um, <laughs> we're, we're I would like to finish two books. That sounds good. Yeah, stay home and get big writers. We had vaguely been um, thinking that we would go to Pemicon. Pemicon. Pemicon, um, yes. I don't think I know Pemicon. Where is that one? Pemicon is the National Science Fiction Convention. It's going on right now. <laughs> in Can it happens to be going on in um, Winnipeg. And um, let's see. Tanya Huff is the guest of honor there. Oh, I adore her. Gee whiz. But we had thought we would be able to do it, but there were other... Um, that, that would be a great train trip. Uh, but... Uh, Winnipeg. We, we weren't able to. I was going to say, do you prefer the smaller cons or the bigger cons like World Con, Dragon Con, Genghis Con? Are you. Genghis was okay. You had to get to know him. But no, World Con's too big. World, World Con is about the far edge of what we want. Dragon Con is, is absurd, um, it's much too large. I had, I had a really heartrending experience at Dragon oh, Con. No. Uh -oh. and, it only went to the one. <laughs> Yep, and we went to we we went to Dragon Con, and they had two floors of uh, dealers' oh, room at Dragon. Two Con. floors. Mm. There were two floors of dealers' room, and there was, in effect, an executive dealers' room, and then a dealers' room where they shoved everybody in. Uh, I'm probably going to be upsetting people by putting it this way. They shoved everybody in who who was willing to take a four by four table space. Um, side by there side. There was literally no room to move. It was mm. a, a maze. 
you once you entered the room, the only way you could get out was by going through following the entire maze around the room in in more or less in order without around all the things. And uh, at that time, there was Lou Ferrano um, was one of the people and he was standing behind the table signing his signing his um, photos. photographs. And also behind the table there was Peter Beagle. And it was like he was chained to the table. The only thing he could do was stand behind the table. He didn't have room to move. And he didn't have room to sit. It was, you know, not a place for someone with claustrophobia. It was kind of sad because I, I, I was looking at these people desperately trying to sell their photographs to people. Uh, they, what, um, that was not exactly what... Um, no, Peter was selling books. Peter was there. Peter, Peter Beagle was selling books, but uh, Peter Beagle had been one of my mentors when I went to Clarion West in 1973. And it was like, uh, it was, I felt embarrassed for him to have to be shoved into this place where there was barely enough room for him. And he'd have to apply to be able to be in the dealer's room. And I'm saying, well, you're, this is Peter Beagle. What is he doing down here in the basement? So, so that was a that was a a feature of that particular convention that um, that really really bothered me. Now we it was a convention where we were there because Ann McCaffrey had sent us a note and said, "Oh, by the way, I'm going to be at Dragon Con, and so will you." Oh, I see. Well, <laughs> well that was a that was a planned performance. There was no reason, as far as I was concerned, to ever drive. I understand. If Anne McCaffrey said, Jeannie, you're going to go be here, then I would say yes, ma'am. So, you know, I respect that. Yep. Well, and Anne, Anne was a was a fan of, of the Lee Aiden books, and she was a fan of cats, and she was a fan of Maine Coon Cats. Mm-hmm. And we had Maine Coon Cats, and we had Lee Aiden books. So that, that all worked out well. I could well. see it, yeah. and, um, uh, and she had, in fact, she, she had become annoyed with one of our publishers who had dropped us, and when another publisher came along, she sent them a picture of her and her coon cat. Go ahead. And the stack of books on her to be read pile directly um, over her shoulder was Plan B by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller yeah. on the top. And I'm looking, at this, I'm looking at this thing where she's going to get us in so much trouble. But uh, because her publisher was the publisher who had dropped us, Del Rey. Yeah. Uh, so in any case, but we we found um, and the, then there at that Dragon Con the same thing. The they had us in the bombproof room in the basement. That's where the writers or the writing track was in the basement in the bombproof rooms. And John Ringo had told me that they put us there because they realized how valuable writers were. Mm-hmm. So that in case of a nuclear attack, we would be safe. So it was. Um, but we've been to we have been to a couple of Comic Con and Comic Con style events, and we we were just uh, if you can't move and you can't uh, can't turn around. And the the old style the old style cons are really about meeting meeting and talking to people. It was just something you can't do with the really huge cons. You can hardly find you can hardly find yourself, much less your friends. It's true. The big ones, I, I also, I remember 30 minutes to cross the foyer in the hotel every time I went down. 
On the other hand, I got trapped in a every morning at 7 a.m. Apparently, Liam McIntyre and I both needed coffee. And so went down and we were crushed against each other and his hand rested over mine. And I think I had his love child or something. He didn't know it. <laughs> it was still a beautiful moment we got to share. Okay. So the smaller cons then. I, I also like some of the smaller cons out here. Have you ever been out here to Baycon or Fogcon? We were at um, Silicon. Okay. Um, Silicon, the, the Silicon 3. And... The schedule that year was, uh, if I recall correctly, was against Baycon. I never understand and that. Yeah, Cal- California is, is hard to get to. Um, we did go to, I'm going to say one Worldcon, but it might have been two Worldcons. Steve, help me out in California. But by the time you take a train from Maine to California, by the time you get off the train, it's like it takes you three days to get your land knife back. Hey. Oh. I don't know whether to ask about your thoughts on the whole Chengdu Worldcon or not. There's part of me that says, why would anybody want to, <laughs> much like why would anybody go to Qatar to watch soccer? Why would anybody go to these, you know, repressive authoritarian countries? Yeah, I had no interest in going to a Worldcon in China. We would have needed to fly. And um, because of various experiences and some, and some physical limitations, uh, we just don't. Uh, and I am informed there was a Worldcon guest of honor who, um, upon arriving at Worldcon, was still was still so stricken by the panic attacks of flying that long, um, and it took days to to recover from that. And taking taking that, I said no, I w- I would not go to a, an overseas Worldcon um, simply. Just for and call it comfort, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go in any case. It was not not ever on our on our radar to um, to go to China. Although I have to say, I was a little sad that I had somewhat plans to go down to New Zealand because I freaking love New Zealand, <laughs> but it got put off in the wrong way, and so the timing just just is terrible. Miss, what's your favorite con, Chess? My favorite con is in in the U.S. is FogCon. Our, our very, very small literary local convention. You have about 200 people, I think. Um, though that, again, hasn't met since since the pandemic. I'm, I also, of course, I have a favourite um, UK convention, which is FantasyCon, which is where my, it's pretty much where my, uh, where my, my engagement with the whole convention circuit started. If you don't count the one where I met, um, there was a, there was a British science fiction con in Newcastle, so obviously I had to go to that. That was in the early '80s, and that's where I met Jeff Wyman. So it was kind of lovely. FantasyCon is—it—I mean—it pulls everybody in. You get the science fiction writers, the fantasy writers, and the horror writers, particularly, and I love that. Is Pemicon one of the only that's actual dedicated to being science fiction convention in particular, or I don't—I mean, I'm thinking it's, of there's a lot of cross-genre cons, but I'm trying to think of specifically science fiction. Well. Well, Pemicon is a um, a one-time event. It's it's an ASFIC, and they put it uh, they they won the right to to hold the NASFIC, which ha- which occurs every time the Worldcon is out of is out of the country, mm-hmm. is overseas, and so that's what Pemicon is. I doubt that it, I, I I don't think they were ex- they're exclusively science fiction. Um, rather, they were trying to put together a show, uh, as it were, an event. For for those of us who couldn't get to, uh, who couldn't get to China, that makes sense. and 
And they do that. They do that. Um, we just found out um, that Buffalo will be holding the NASFIC in 2024. And Buffalo, we can uh, get so, to. Yeah, we'll be able to get there with, without any problem. Uh, we generally drive to conventions that we that we can that are within a day or a day and uh, an inch away from us and otherwise we take the trains and that has sort of limited us we've been guests of honor at 25 conventions or so and one of the necessities if it's not within driving distance is that they bring us by train we have missed a couple of conventions because we we weren't willing to fly but it's it's best for for um for everybody if I if I don't appear in a panic. <laughs> it entirely makes sure and Buffalo's nice and you could always sneak across the border to visit Niagara. It's lovely. I need I've been looking for an excuse to get back to Niagara Falls, so this may be it. Yeah, it, it might. We we you know we we live within uh, an hour of the Canadian border anyway here in Maine, so that's fine. But yeah, the 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 Buffalo that sounds good, and that's what you know we're going to be. Sort of in that area when we go to Astronomicon. Yes, Astronomicon. Astronomicon. Yes. Astronomicon. Too many syllables. Astronomicon in, um, yeah, I had it in, in October of this year. But the smaller conventions, the smaller conventions where you don't have 35,000 people on the, on the floor at once are, are much better. And even the One Worldcon, Sharon was moderating a panel at One Worldcon, and I think she had. Um, 3,000 people <laughs> in the room. No, no, I had, yeah, there were a lot of people, but Lois McMaster Bujell was the um, guest of honor for that Worldcon, and every single one of her fans went to every single one of her events. That's that's fair. She's lovely. Yeah. And we had people sitting on the floor and standing in the back, and I'm thinking, please, please do not let there be a fire marshal at this, in this hallway. Oh, I, I, I'm sort of, I'm on the fence. I have a little bit of a love-hatred relationship with panels. On the one hand, I love them because sometimes I can go and listen and learn something entirely new. And then the one I went to Dragon Con, I I, I stood up four times to argue that, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was about computer security. And I'm like, this is how I make my living, people. And before you hand wave something, I, I felt this is how Judy Tarr must feel when people talk about he went on his horse and he galloped for 12 hours straight, you know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> No, I, just, I just feel like don't make such an easy mistake that somebody wants to throw your book across the room saying, oh, they didn't do any work at all. No, the uh, the, the horse thing um, is 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 something ongoing, of course. I'm, I I helped keep a horse for a couple of years when I was when I was younger. And when you have 40 horses abreast going through a um, a uh, passageway that's 12 <laughs> feet wide. Yeah, you have to. It's like the blocking. I mean. Every, every once in a while, I find that if you ever read a book and you're like, wait, one second ago, you were standing over them with a candlestick in your head and Colonel Mustard was cowering. And then you just dropped it and you walked out of the room, which you had described as being 20 feet away. So <laughs> that's like three steps and you were out of the room. And no, wait, no. This is, this is the, you have identified the importance in writing of the two blank lines. Two blank lines? Two blank lines covers a multitude of sins. You hit Colonel Mustard over the head with the candlestick, two blank, you drop the candlestick, two blank lines, and you can be anywhere else. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> Is that the sort of the two star thing or the three star thing I've yes. also seen? Yes. The hashtag that they sometimes yes. put in between scenes. 
There's a word, there is, there is a word for the symbols that you use to denote the passage of time or the shift of scene. And I can never remember it, which drives me crazy every time it comes up in conversation like now. Well, then you should look it up for me and I'll put it in the liner notes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, two blank lines, be somewhere else. I like that. But uh, it ruins your exit, I suppose. But if you're going to write a good exit, then write a good exit, right? Right. But if you don't need the exit, if you just accomplished what you came to do and now you can go down the hall and get coffee, why not just cut to the coffee? Yeah. And we had an editor who was explain who had explained to us that as far as he was concerned, there was the blank lines, there was a single star, a double star, and a single star meant there was if you had the blank lines, you could be right where you were. If there was a, a, a double star or more, you were someplace else and probably at a different time. He took this to a high level. <laughs> yes, he That's, did. I, I, I like it. Now Now I wonder if there's a whole web page of all of this that I've missed somewhere. <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry. You cut back in time. You need a hashtag to go back in time. <laughs> I, I don't know. The standard editing rules there. We shall have to look it up because now I'm dying of curiosity. But... That blocking is is important. And it's one of those things I enjoy about your stories is that the the last one I read, they were dancing and there was a dance in a in a scene, and you made it clear. All the blocking was clear, and I could see where the this person is. Somebody was watching from the bar slightly above here, and you just described those details instead of hand waving them, or if they were only in your head and I couldn't see them in my head then how do they get there? And I enjoy the way you two put the details in. If we're, if we're seeing it, you should see it too, yes. It's funny, we ch- there's, a, there's another thing in, in writing called the telling detail. The which, which detail? Say that again. The telling detail. Telling detail. Yes. <laughs> it, is, it is the detail that proves that you are in place. You don't have to tell all of the details, but you have to tell the right details. I suppose if one said one was in Pittsburgh in 1894, all you'd have to say is it was hell with the lid off. The smoke was everywhere. Okay. know that. That could have been Bangor, Maine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was in the newspapers a few times, hell with the lid off. So you could tell <laughs> people, people from Pennsylvania oh, would know it. But <laughs> And so, so many things now take, um, take scholars. There's the... Um, series of books of which I am inordinately um, fond by Mary Laswell about three old ladies and the adventures they have. And this is right around World War II. And Mrs. Feely and the other two ladies live in California. Mrs. Feely lives up the hill from the tuna factory. And the very first time I read this book, she's talking about the fact that all of the Japanese workers at the tuna factory aren't there anymore. And I didn't realize until... I, 10, 15 years later, um, the, that meant they had been moved to the camps oh. because of World War II. And I'm like, oh, and this is a funny book, um, but that's telling detail. That's neat. And yeah, that it's exactly perfect. I, now I'm going to use that word in my head when I think of, ah, look how that's where they did it there and that's where they did it there. So what a neat idea of instead of having to say, in the Rookback sector of Sagittarian, you know, in a Class C planet. Sorry, I'm just. This is all made up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it was consistent every time. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it. it in, if you said he 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 sat down at the, he sat down at the re, you know the restaurant, they brought him his meal, and damn, the old bay was empty. Oh 
Yeah. Um, so, okay, if you're doing a mystery in Baltimore or in Maryland, yeah, there, okay. there might be old, be old Bay on the, on, the, on the table. Okay, fine. That's, a, that's one of those kind of details, too. I will have you know that on the fourth floor of an unremarkable office building in Foster City, California, back in the marketing department, there is a little can of Old Bay in the top drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know it's there. I mean, if you ever happen to be randomly in Foster City on the fourth floor of an office building that's mostly deserted. Well, keep that in mind. So if you're going off to a, you said like next year, the, it looked like in July was the big NASFAC. You're mm-hmm. going to have two new books by then? What are you working on? We're working on, let's see, Salvatore was the 25th book in the Leaden series. I am working on the book that we should have been working on when we wrote Savage Right, which now has its title. It's called Ribbon Dance. And it's, it's called to, The Grinning Man? Ribbon Dance. No, no. Ribbon Dance. Ribbon Dance. It's due at the end of this month, so no pressure. No and pressure. Steve is writing the 27th Reagan book, which is due all the way out in November. I don't think they'll both be scheduled for 2024. No, and and we are, we're not sure of the date right now. I think the date for for ribbon dance is probably summer. Probably summer. Yeah. Probably. Summer. I think that's the date that we have received from the publisher. I'm just delighted at the rigor and the discipline that you guys have when you're sitting down to write it, and you're like, "Nope, I'm going to have a book, and it's going to be done by this time." That's beautiful. How do you do it? I, I, no, no, I don't know how we do it. <laughs> We're we're sitting here laughing, thinking, oh, God, it's very often the the way the books come together is surprising. We have had books that follow more or less follow what looks like an outline and um, and thus, you know, where you're going. And we have other books, which every time you try to say, then this happens after this. Right. They say, no, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. That can't happen. Then we have. And, and then you have books. We, then you have books like Savage Right, which basically I wasn't. We weren't supposed to be working on. I was supposed to be working on Ribbon Dance, and this idea was in the way. So I said, "Well, you know." And this is the downfall of many a good writer. I'll just write a couple hundred <laughs> words. I like and it. The next thing I knew, my head was full of characters. They were all shouting, "Big party!" It's Tensori light, and it just galloped. So there was no outline. Um, no idea what I was doing. I, the characters totally took it over. So that that was kind of a gift for that one. Ribbon Dance wants to know, wants to count all of the nails and see see if my hammers are sharp. And um, they're much much less exuberant presenting book. We did have one book, and this was this was the result of carelessly having put um, a set of dates. In two places in the book, yeah, um, the, the, the the week before the book was absolutely due, we had the entire living room floor covered with pieces of paper that were um, <laughs> actually pieces of the book going, okay, wait a minute. No, here, why don't we read this one? Okay, we read this one. No, no. Okay, yeah, right. We can put that over here and then that that chapter where, the, where we've got the multi-chapter break to make it into book book two of the book yeah we can put these over here and then that goes over and um don't do it that way by golly don't do it that way i'm very suspicious that maybe not all books are alike in how they present to the writer 
<laughs> what was it said? Um, as soon as you learn how to write one book, it's over, and then you have to learn how to write another one. Oh, I like it. Yes. I guess it's kind of comforting, feeling they do different ways. <laughs> I think we were just coming to the conclusion that not all books are alike in how they present to the writer, and Sharon had another good quote for it on the topic. So you don't write all of your books in exactly the same way either. Yeah, I kind of do. Um, oh, do you? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I start at the beginning, hopefully with the title in the first line, and then I sort of write till I get to the end. Um, everything in order, totally linear making it up as I go along. Seems unnatural somehow. I once found a friend of mine literally in tears on the steps of the Lyttonville Library because she had finished her book. She thought she had finished her book, um, but there were like 50 or 60 individual sections and she'd written them as they came to her and she had no idea how to fit them all together. So we spent a happy afternoon in her, in her office, sprawled across the floor with many, many little pieces of paper, trying to make it all make sense. That was fun. It sounds exactly what Sharon and Steve were just yeah. describing. Yeah, absolutely. We all have to write that book, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm- that, that's, not our, that's not our usual way, but when it came down to it, it was that was the way that one was going to, to get stuck together. However it came to us, we appreciate that you brought us Salvage Right, the 25th book now in the Liadon universe. And that's beautiful. Well done, you. Great working on the next. Thank you. And I did want to mention the Salvage Right has an exceptionally beautiful cover. It does. Who did it? Who did the art? David Mattingly. David Mattingly. It's gorgeous. Has he done other covers for you? He has done most of most of the covers. I'm trying to think. I will say all of the covers of the novels we did originally. We've done originally with Bane. So, I, I think he missed I think he missed a couple. Oh no, he missed um, he missed Fledgling. He missed Fledgling and I think he missed one of the Jethry covers. Right. No, that's true. But two covers out of I haven't how I've done with Bane, twenty books we've done with Bane. Well, he's done most of them. Uh and and I'm gonna to say this that you can go to the if you do a diligent search on David Mattingly, you can find a page where you can buy the cover art. For your own walls, he, he sells them as prints, and uh, he's good enough when he does his covers, he sends us print number one. Aww. That's lovely. <laughs> as well he should. <laughs> yeah, he's done, we've done 15 books of him. I mean, you, could, you may have to build an extra office just to have all of the covers there. You almost wallpaper. And when we were guests of honor, we were guests of honor at, uh, in Piscataway for Heliosphere, uh, David was the artist guest of honor, so he came out, and we had a, a pretty good time together talking about art and and, and books and etc. There at that convention, and that's one of the nice things about the smaller conventions. When we were talking about convention size, that was about three hundred people, maybe three hundred and fifty. So people had a chance to actually ask questions and follow up questions, and to catch us catch us on the side, and we had. Therefore, also a chance to catch up with um, David and and Kathleen. So the the smaller conventions give you um, room to breathe in many ways. Thank you. Uh, the conventions that we've been going to regularly for many years now is Boscone, which is a moderate size convention. I it got it got a hit took a hit from the um, from COVID, of course. Boscone does a very smart thing. It's a little larger than than the uh, than Heliosphere, um, but they have a living room. And it's built in as part of their space, um, a place with couches and things. 
I could bark on there. Yeah, and you can you can sit and be reading a book or, or doing your embroidery or whatever, and people can come by and find you. And since this is my preferred um, way of being at parties is I will stake out a place and people can come by and see me and I don't have to go wandering around and not know where I am. That's what I do. I, I stake out a table and I let everybody come and I will buy anybody drinks who sits at my table while I we chat and talk and sometimes I write a story and I always have such good luck there because all of my bar con stories always sell. Okay, great. So I'll have to come out to an East Coast. I would be delighted to buy you two tasty beverages. Thank you. We'll be delighted to accept. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time with us today, Sharon and Steve, and congratulations on Book 25 in Leaden. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Smith. Our intro music and exit music are both performed by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, and homage to your favorite coffee shop near you where you like writing. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.